Thanks, Natalie. Uh, good morning and welcome to Auckland AV. Great to see you here. My name is Rowan. Uh, again, one of the pastors here. It is a great privilege, isn't it, to come along each week uh, alongside one another to hear God's word, to pray together as God's people, uh, to the God who is in control of all things. That's one of the things that we're going to see today as we've read through this passage, that God is certainly in control. So why don't we pray, and as we look through this together now, as we think through what God will be saying to us, He'd shape and mould us to understand what do you have for us. Let's pray. Father God, this morning as we come together, as we have heard your word, we ask that you would prepare our minds and our hearts and our ears to hear what you have to say, that we would see freshly what Jesus has done at the cross, that we would recognise what an amazing thing this is and that we might, as we come together as your people, stand back and live lives in awe and worship of who you are. We pray that out of your word today, you'd grow us in the likeness of your son. Amen. How do you want to be remembered? I don't know if you've ever thought about that question. You ever started writing out your gravestone kind of thing that you're going to put on there? Uh, How do you want to be remembered? Uh, Our reputation, our legacy, I think is something that deep down we care about. You've only got to think about the last time that someone said something that you thought wasn't true about yourself and how that made you feel. You're like, no, that's not true. They can't say that. It's something that fires me up hugely. I'm like, how dare they say that? It's just not true. And, and your reputation gets marred and you're like, this is not right. And we care about our reputation. In this section of Luke today, we're going to come across three different groups of people, three people that will be remembered very differently. We'll see the chief priests and the scribes, we'll see Judas, and then we'll see Jesus. Two of these groups of people are about to make the biggest mistakes of their lives. And it's something that we need to learn from by seeing how Jesus wants us to remember him. So how will you be remembered? Luke 22, verse 1. The festival of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was drawing near. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put Jesus to death because they were afraid of the people. We get to this part of Luke's gospel, of his recording of what's happening in the life of Jesus. These chief priests and scribes, they couldn't stand Jesus. And we've already seen in the previous chapters in the story so far that they hated him. They hated that he was taking away their power and their authority. But what Luke puts front and center right now is what's behind their desire to get rid of him. They were afraid of the people. Were they afraid the people would come and kill them? What were they afraid of the people? What about the people around them made these chief priests and these scribes so afraid? They were afraid for their reputation. About what others would say about them, about their position amongst the people. And so they hated the way that Jesus was sidelining them and pushing them off to the side. And so... They knew they were no match for Jesus. They couldn't do the things that he he could do. And so they wanted to get rid of him. Be aware of the horrors of fearing man and not God. Be aware of the way that when we fear others' view of us more than God's view of us, we do all sorts of atrocities. Such a great little warning as we start this chapter. They were afraid of the people. How often I'm afraid of others' opinions of me and what I think about Jesus. 
Secondly, we meet another man by the name of Judas. And the story just keeps moving on. It kind of starts feeling as we meet Jesus like this whole story is on autopilot. It's driving us towards a destination, a plan that can't be altered, a plan that we'll see in a moment God is in complete control over. Chapter 22, verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. He went and discussed with the chief priests and the temple police how he could hand Jesus over to them. They were glad and agreed to give him silver, so he accepted the offer and started looking for a good opportunity to betray him to the crowd when the crowd was not present. How do you feel at this point being Jesus? One of your closest followers, Judas, here is desiring to hand you over to be killed to the people who are fearing people rather than God. You kind of see the tragedy happening in slow motion like a car accident just waiting to happen. Everything is coming together in this plot. Judas, one of Jesus' closest friends, places his desire for silver over his saviour. He loves money and he wants money. As you read this, you kind of sit back and you go, but was it really his fault? I mean, Luke records that Satan entered Judas. What's with that? What is going on? How is that kind of okay? So Luke hasn't told us much about the character of uh, Judas so far. But what we hear in the Gospel of John is that there's more going on than just Satan coming in and controlling Judas like a puppet. That was not what was going on at all here. See, in John 12, uh, John records that Judas was a thief. He was in charge of the, of the money bags that Jesus used for the mission, the spreading of the kingdom. And Judas had his hand in the money bags and was consistently taking money from that. He cared about his money so much that he swapped it for his saviour. Then in a scene not dissimilar to the Garden of Eden, where a serpent came to Eve, another image bearer of God, and said, surely you will not die. Satan enticed Judas to continue with his own selfish, sinful desires for money over God. But unknowingly, Satan provides a platform for his own demise this time. You see, this is all part of God's plan, that Satan is leading Judas to betray Jesus, who will defeat Satan by his death on the cross. And finally, death will be defeated itself. Satan loses at his own game by his own game. There's a couple of warnings in this little section. Be aware of the horrors of loving money over God. Be aware of the horrors of loving people more than God. Be aware of the horrors of loving money more than God. How many sacrifices do we make in our relationship with God? Because we want more money in our bank account. We want more comfort that money brings. Satan's desire for silver killed his saviour. But also remember what Luke lays out very clearly in the whole way this narrative works. God is in control in this. He's sovereign. He he uses mankind's own wickedness and stupidity and rebellion and the plots and plans of Satan himself to bring about his plans and purposes. You've got to stand back and go, wow, what an amazing God. He even uses his enemies to bring about his plans. This whole section is about Jesus walking to Jerusalem to die in our place. It had been the plan from the beginning. God knew it before he created Adam and Eve. He knew this is where all of creation was going. Jesus willingly was going to die for the creation that he created. Now, that doesn't mean that wrong things aren't wrong. 
It doesn't mean when we see God using the stupidity and the wickedness of humans or the evil of Satan that because God uses them for his plans and purposes that they're okay. No, wrong actions are still wrong. But God uses those responsible for those actions to bring about his good plans and purposes. It's such a helpful reminder when life is crumbling around you and everything's turning to custard and it doesn't feel like things are going as they should to remember God is in control. God is good. He will always work for what is for my best and what is for his glory. We can trust him. He can even use Satan and people turning over the son of God to be killed to bring about the greatest salvation ever. Have you ever met anyone like that? God is in control. But at no point does that absolve us from taking him at his word, from listening to him and working out what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. We're going to see next week what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We're going to see in three separate sections as we look at the passage next, next week, what it means to be a true disciple of him. But this week, we see two accounts of those who don't do it well at all. And one account of a perfect follower of God. Be aware of the horrors of loving money over God. This would be a decision that Judas will regret forever. And I want us just to sit and and recognize this here. The Bible doesn't have a very positive view of this guy Judas. All because he disrespected his Savior. He handed him over. He said, I don't know him. I I, I don't want to follow him. He isn't God. If you're here today and you haven't come to follow Jesus yet, I want to plead with you, don't leave here today making a decision to reject Jesus because I can guarantee you that if Jesus says what is right, if if what Jesus says is right, that he is God and he's the only one who's died in our place, then you'll regret that decision forever, forever. In Mark's account of these events, Jesus says it would have been better off if you'd never been born than to have been born and rejected me. Can you imagine that? You would have been better off never existing. It's one of the reasons why I don't think hell is just disappearing into non-existence. Because Jesus says you've been better off never existing than to have existed and rejected me. I think hell is is an eternal punishment from God. Partly because of this verse. God doesn't just annihilate us. It's the reality of our decision. Do not make a decision in your life now that you will regret forever. The key to not regretting our life now and the decisions that we make today is to understand the joy of what Jesus has done, is to remember what he wants us to remember about himself, about his reputation and what he has done. And this passage is probably the clearest passage in Luke at explaining what Jesus is actually doing, who this man is and what it means for us. If you want to know what to make of Jesus' ministry, then the place to go in the Bible is the place where Jesus tells you what to remember about what he's doing and why he came. And that's what we have for us as we look at this man, Jesus. But to understand what he is doing, we need to under, understand the context of this meal that they're having. Uh, the disciples are gathered around in, in, a, in a small room, an upper room, uh, and they're gathered around this table and they're celebrating what they call the, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread or the Passover. Uh, this was kind of a big festival that Jews celebrated every year where they remembered back to what God had done when he created the nation Israel. Uh, Israel were in Egypt under the slavery of the Egyptians and they wanted to leave. God had told them to leave and come out to the land that he promised them. Um, but the Pharaoh that was in control didn't want to let God's people go. 
And so God said, let my people go. Pharaoh said, no. So God said, I'm going to keep giving you plague after plague after plague, judgment after judgment. There's 10 of them. And the first nine, all sorts of horrible things happen. And Pharaoh says, okay, I'll let you go. And then the plagues stop. The frogs go away. The, the river kind of stops being blood. And then, then Pharaoh goes, no, 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 I'm in control again. And it's this amazing moment of, of an arm wrestle, which is unmatched. It's unfair. The first two rounds, the Egyptians can do some of the things that God does. But from that point on, God smashes them. Their livestock just disappear. Uh, there's hail. There's just, they're just decimated. The whole picture of what was happening in this letter of, to, of Exodus is a picture of who God is and how he is in control. But they kept rejecting this God. Pharaoh wouldn't let him go. And so they had this final plague. And it was the, the plague of the firstborn, where every firstborn male son throughout all of Egypt, no matter who you were or where you came from, would die on one night as the angel of death would pass over. And the only way that anyone could be saved from God's judgment for rejecting him at that point was to take God at his word. What they did was they prepared this meal and they got ready to go. They kind of had flat bread so it was fast, didn't have time to make it rise. And they got a lamb and they killed this lamb and they cooked the lamb and they ate it. And they're kind of getting ready to leave the next morning. And what God said was, if you want to make sure the firstborn son in your house does not die as they deserve to do because you have rejected me, so I want you to wipe the blood of the lamb over the doorposts of your house as a sign for when the angel of death passes through to see that this house has been covered by the death of someone else. The firstborn son doesn't need to die because a lamb has died in your place. And that night, that's exactly what God did. Angel of death passed through and every house that had the blood smeared on the doorposts was saved from the eldest son dying. That very next morning, there would have been wailing and crying all over for the people that rejected God, their eldest sons died, including Pharaoh's eldest son. It was a symbol to recognize the reality of the judgment of God, that he is in control, that he is not to be messed with, but also his great saving provision, that he made a way out for anyone who took him at his word. And it's still the same today because of what Jesus is about to show us. If you haven't read the story of Exodus, it's a riveting read particularly the first half, as Lachlan said. But it's really worth looking at the faithfulness of God. So they've come together to, to celebrate this Passover. They did it every year, the Jews. It was a great festival to remember the way God saved them and brought them out of Egypt and out of slavery to make them their own people in this new land. They celebrated it every year as, as, a, as a remembrance of God's saving work of them bringing them out and making a new people. Well, as Jesus and his closest friends sit down in this upper room to eat the Passover meal, Jesus takes what was a well-known ritual and he changes it. He turns it on its head and makes it about something else. Have a look with me at verse 14, chapter 22. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then they said to him, I fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Uh, there's intentionality here for God the Son. I've fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It's not just that it's his last meal with them, but it is. There's this great relationship he has with them. But he's also looking forward to what he's come to do, to redefine and to fulfill what has been written. 
really want to encourage you to grab that book, God's Big Picture. It's so helpful at seeing how the whole Bible fits together in, in one big picture. If you haven't read it, grab it. Um, race people to the back. We can get more orders. Uh, we're not trying to make money off books. The whole point of them, that we have them here is so that people can grow in their love and knowledge of God and know Him more. So use that resource. It's there for you. Uh, if you don't use it, there's no point having it. So love you. encourage you to go to that. What Jesus is about to do is something he's been looking forward to because it would change everything Israel had been doing in monumental proportions. Look with me at verse 17. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, take, and, take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What Jesus does in this Lord's Supper, he changes what the Passover was really about. It's no longer about the blood of a lamb that rescued them from Egypt, but about the blood of Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, who would die in the place of everyone who'd ever sinned. In fact, what he's saying is that that lamb that died, that they killed and they wiped the blood over the doorpost to leave and save them from the death of the firstborn, that actually did nothing. It was just a sign that pointed forward to what Jesus would do as he died on that cross and took the penalty for us. The sacrificial lamb is Jesus and it's about a new promise, a new covenant, a covenant that the old one pointed forward to but is now beefed up and better and bigger, a new contract between us and God where we can call God our Father, we can call Jesus our brother, and we can look forward to an eternity where sin is finally done away with and right relationships are given and people are in perfect relationship with God and one another. It's about a kingdom, a kingdom whose banquet has the most expensive entry ticket the world has ever seen, the blood of God the Son. That's what it cost for you and me to be able to spend eternity with God. Jesus' death in our place. It's about the greatest escape the world has ever seen. The escape of you and I from what we deserve, from rejecting the life-giving God, from death. Jesus reframes this Passover meal because he wants us to remember him by what he's come to fulfill. He says, do this, celebrate this in remembrance of me. So what are we supposed to remember in the Lord's Supper? What, What is it about? Number one, it's about Jesus' death. The one true God-man, the creator of the universe, the ruler of all, took on human flesh. He became human like you and me. Flesh and blood, heart pumping, lungs filling, and what's it called when they don't feel? That one, exhaling. There we go. He became human. God became human so that he could come and live a perfect life and die in our place. And Jesus wants us to remember the fleshliness of it. His body was broken for us. So here's something I prepared earlier. just wanted to say that. Right? So he gets a loaf. He's a loaf. Just nothing special. Got it from the bakery down the road. Great bakery. Shameless plug for them. Um, and he, at the table, he, he gets this loaf. I'm going to do it here and try and catch the crumbs. And he, and he says, remember, my body is broken for you. God the Son's body was ripped apart so that we could be forgiven. Not just on the cross, not just whipped and beaten, 
but that he took the penalty that we deserved from God the Father. He took the rap from what we had done. He was broken. He died instead of us. He says, take it and eat it. Remembering that the only way that you can enter into this new promise, this new covenant, that you can be part of what I am doing in this new kingdom is if you depend on my body being broken for you. That my death on the cross that's about to happen was for you. He then takes this awesome glass. This wine, this is grape juice. It's it's wine, just needs to hang around for a bit longer. (laughs) Then it will ferment and, and sort it. And as he pours it out, he's saying that my blood was poured out for you. The sound of filling up that glass is the sound of the blood of the creator of the universe who made blood, who made your body being poured out so that we could be forgiven. He had to die so that we could stand in his place. He says, drink this in remembrance of my blood poured out for you. This is what you deserve, but I've taken it in your place. And he points them forward to to reshaping that meal. Jesus' death was real. It was gruesome. And he wants us to remember it. He wants us to remember it so we don't forget, number one, what should happen to us. Our blood should be poured out. We should face the penalty of of rejecting the life-giving God for eternity, for, for turning our backs on God. He wants us to remember our participation in it. Our participation in it. Not only are we to remember it, but we're to remember that we participated in Jesus' death. It was because of you and me that he died. For Judas, his participation was clear. He betrayed him. It was very, very clear. For the chief priests, they knew what they were doing. But it's not just Jesus. Sorry, it's not just Judas. In the coming weeks, we'll start to see, like next week and the week after, that the disciples, they, they betrayed him as well. They turned their backs on him. They denied him, abandoned him to his death. It makes you wonder what true discipleship looks like. What does it look like to really follow Jesus? Have to wait till next week till we see that. But it wasn't just the disciples either. The reason Jesus, Jesus tells us to keep breaking this bread and drinking from that cup is because he wants us to remember it was because of us that he died. As we celebrate this meal, and we're going to do this a little later, we're to remember that we are not innocent in this. We are not innocent. Jesus died because we would turn our backs on God. All of us have failed to treat God as he deserves. We've failed to treat him as the absolute ruler of our life. It was my sin and yours that nailed Jesus to that cross. It was because of my rejection of him that his blood was poured out. I hope you can see the cost of our rebellion against God. It's a huge cost. If you're coming along and checking out the claims of Christianity, I want you to see today... But God says that our rebellion against him, it's horrific. It deserves death and judgment and separation from his goodness forever. I need to ask us all today as I ask myself, are there areas of my life that I need to do business with God? That I need to go to him and confess my sin? We've already confessed in that prayer that Dave led us in this morning of the reality of our sinfulness. 
And we really need to ask, are there areas that I need to confess my sin to God? Are you in any area of your life living in active rebellion to Him? This Lord's Supper, this bread being broken and the grape juice being poured out is a reminder of the reality of sin. If there is sin, and there will be for all of us, confess it, for we have one who has died in our place. You see, it was because of us that Jesus died, but it was also for us. Jesus' death was for us. His crucifixion wasn't death for death's sake. It was death for our sake. He died in our place. He faced the penalty and the punishment for sin, so we don't have to. Peter records in 1 Peter 3.18, it's on the screen. For Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous, the perfect one, for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. I use this illustration. We often use it at Explaining Christianity. But imagine this was a book that was full of every time that I'd done something wrong. Every time that I'd rejected the true and living God. It was a true and accurate account of my life. Now, I'm only 37, so I've got lots more to go. But imagine that it recorded everything that you'd ever done, said, or thought, and really as a true and accurate record, that God would see and go, have you treated me as God? There are things in there that we are proud of, but the reality is there is so much in here that if I was put before a court to say, are you guilty of rejecting the true and living God? The judge would say, guilty. And imagine uh, God is the light and this is me. The problem with me and my relationship with God is that. (laughs) Imagine telling your parents you want nothing to do with them that many times. No offense, I'm just ignoring you. Just pushing you to the side. Nothing, you know, I'm not trying to be harsh. Imagine what we deserve for rejecting our true and living God. There's definitely a problem in my relationship with God. I'm not in relationship with Him because of this. Uh, I deserve the right punishment for all this. But Jesus, as he lived, he never did any of that. He had a clean slate, never turned his back on God, never has any record. He would be found not guilty. And what happens when Jesus walks to his death, which is the plan and purpose of God from the beginning? He says, I will take the penalty for what you have done. Not just you, but my death is sufficient for the sin of the whole world. I, the perfect one, will put this barrier in my relationship with God. I will take the punishment for what this is. I will die and have my blood poured out and my body broken and face the wrath of God so that you can stand forgiven if you just trust in me. Christ died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. That's what Peter's saying and that's what this whole Passover is about. Jesus' death was for me. It was in my place. The question for us is, do we trust that? If we, were come, if we were to come before God tonight and God would say, why should I let you into my heaven? The only answer we can say is you shouldn't. But my hope is that I'm trusting in that Jesus died in my place. He is my only hope. He is my Lord. He is the one that I think is going to be ruling the universe forever. And I follow him. Eating the bread... And drinking the juice symbolizes us sharing in the benefits of Christ's death. It symbolizes the reality that we are part of it, that his death was my death by faith. His blood poured out was, was mine. I don't need to face the penalty and wrath of God anymore because Jesus did it for me. Oh, how great is that? 
I don't have to stand before the God of the universe who I've wronged so many times and I can be forgiven. I am forgiven because Jesus died in my place. What a savior. What a man. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, as you reach out and eat and drink, you are proclaiming that by trusting in what Jesus has done at the cross, the benefits of his death are yours. That's why it's a Christian meal. It's only those who trust in Jesus that can participate in his benefits. If you, if you don't trust in Jesus, you're welcome to eat and drink on it, but you're drinking condemnation on yourself. You're saying, look, Jesus died in my place and his, and his blood was poured out for me and I'm, I'm celebrating that, but I don't believe it. So you're condemned. You're going, this is the only, this is the only way I can be saved. The Lord's Supper points us to the, how great a God we have and that Jesus' death was not only because of me, but it was for me. It is a great celebration. And it gives us spiritual nourishment. It gives us spiritual nourishment. As we fix our eyes on who Jesus is, perfect, and who we are as sinners, it helps us to remember what has been done for us. Oh, it doesn't depend on how perfect I am. It depends on the blood of the Lamb who was slain for me. It depends on Jesus' death in my place. And so we are encouraged at the same point as thankful, at the same point as, as longing to the day when he comes back and the, and the promises that his death brought us are given to us fully. It's a celebration to be like, how amazing are you that you would do this and that I can keep trusting in you because of what you have done. It's like a quenching of our thirst and a feeding of our hunger. It has been done in Christ. And so it provides that spiritual nourishment. I don't know if you've ever been hungry. Uh, I remember Sarah and I, um, before we had kids, that was a while ago, now we did this uh, walk back in Sydney. It's called the Six Foot Track. Now, it's not six foot long, so it's six feet wide. It was 42 kilometers long. Uh, and, and it was this long trek. It was two nights, three days. We had like 25 kilo backpacks on. You had to carry your own water because Australia doesn't have water because it doesn't rain very much. And, uh, and so it was, it was real heavy, right? And we're doing this walk and we'd gone through and we we're, were exhausted. One night, funnily enough, it drained. It just pelted the whole time. We had to walk in the rain the next day. It was, just, it was pretty miserable. And I remember walking down, and the track finished in Janolan Caves. If you've ever been there, there's this really nice cave area. It's a tourist attraction. There's lots of kind of shops and things in there. But in the middle of nowhere, we walked into Janolan Caves. And I can still remember at that moment, I hadn't had a decent feed in three days. I walked down, and I can still smell that smell of hot chips and gravy. And it's got to be one, I'd rate one of the best meals of my life. Chips and gravy. I was so hungry and so wanting to kind of be fed. And as I walked down, the plate came out, chips, hot gravy, like, oh, this gives me sustenance. How much more so the death of Jesus in my place? When life is tiring, when we're exhausted, when, when we're like, oh, I don't feel like I can keep running. We look to the cross and we see that it's been done for us in Jesus. And we see that his blood was poured out for us and his body. And so as we eat this meal, as we celebrate it together, it gives us nourishment, not because there's something special in it. The nutritional value of the grape juice and, and the bread, it's not really that high like chips and gravy, right? Oh, but what it symbolizes is what Jesus has done in our place allows me to stand forgiven, sure, certain, and to celebrate my Savior who has died for me. The nourishment it brings is one of the key things that helps us to keep remembering who Jesus is and what he's done. We're nourished not by the bread and the grape juice, 
but by the news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection and ascension. We're nourished by the gospel. That's what the Lord's Supper represents. The gospel, the news of what Jesus did for us. The reformers, the theological giants of the past, spoke about the Lord's Supper as a visible word, a visible gospel, something that was visible that helped us to remember what Jesus did in our place. It was a visible gospel. If you're feeling dry in your Christian faith, we need to not go searching for experiences of God where we just we have that spine-tingling moment, whether that be through singing or, I don't know, some experience of God. We need to not go seeking the experience. We need to not come into celebrating the Lord's Supper expecting some sort of mystical change or an amazing thing to happen. We eat it and it feels like there's popping candies in our mouth. And you're like, wow, it's amazing. You know, that's not what's going on. No, but we need to come and look afresh at the one whose body was broken for us. Oh, the nourishment that brings. As I remember what Jesus has done and focus my attention on that was because of me and it was for me. And that he is coming again. Oh, what a joy it is to celebrate. What an experience of the news of the gospel we get to share in. Well, there are a few things that the Lord's Supper reminds us of. The next thing it reminds us of is our unity together. I want to just touch on this for a moment and tie up a few things that we have about what the Lord's Supper is. Um, it reminds us of our unity because there was one body that, was, that bled for us. There's only one Jesus, one Savior who died in our place. And Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 10, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in the one bread. When we eat and drink the Lord's Supper together, which we'll do in a minute, uh, we're symbolizing our unity, that we are in Christ. By eating and drinking, we're symbolizing this reality that we trust in Him, that our only hope is that we, our life is in His hands, that He has died my death. And if you trust in Jesus, God in the person of His Spirit lives in you and He unites you to Christ. You are in Christ and Christ is in you, as is everyone who is part of that heavenly church gathered round the throne. And so as you eat and drink the Lord's Supper, we don't do it on our own. It's not like a stay-at-home meal where you just kind of, oh, yeah, I'm just reminding myself of this thing just one-on-one. It's something that you do with other believers to say we're in this together. It could just be two or three. You might do it in your family and to celebrate it there. You might do it within your connect groups and occasionally remember and remind one another of the visible word that is proclaimed as we celebrate together. But you're also reminding that you'll spend eternity with one another because of Jesus. It is a great unity that we express because we are in Christ together. The other thing to think through is that the Lord's Supper is not Jesus' physical body and blood. There's a few things that it's not. It's not actually Jesus. Some people come along and they claim that the, that the Lord's Supper is actually Jesus' body. Somehow something happens and it turns into his body somehow and he's kind of sacrificed over again. Now, the fancy word for that that kind of theologians use is transubstantiation. It just means it, it changes trans into the substance, substantiation of Jesus' body and blood. Uh, and, it, and it's a view the Roman Catholic Church has held for a long time. What it does is it fails to recognize the symbolism that's present in Jesus' words. And Jesus says all sorts of other words as well, like, I am the vine. You are the branches. You're not really a branch. He's not really a vine. Like he seems like, oh, I'm stuck. You know, it's, um, he, he says, I am the door. Like 
you know, it's not an example. You can't, you know, he's not a wooden door. And people go, yes, he's a door. No, it's symbolism. Jesus uses symbolism. We can't just take this as saying, oh, this is, re- is that really his body? No, it was a loaf of bread. It was pointing forward to his body being broken. It was a symbol. And also, he can't really be sacrificed over and over again. It's just odd. It fails to recognize the once for all of what Peter said. Christ died for sins once for all. It happened once. It doesn't need to happen again. Jesus has paid the price for us. To think that it needs to happen over and over and over and re-sacrificed and re-sacrificed and re-sacrificed just minimizes the reality of who Jesus is. Now, others come along and they claim that somehow... Jesus is physically present in the bread and the wine. The bread and the wine aren't Jesus' body and blood, but he's physically present in them. Um, this view is called consubstantiation. Um, why? Because it's a con. Oh, there you go. <laughs> actually, this is what Luther believed. Uh, so, sorry, Luther, you're actually wrong here as well. Uh, it, it, there's not something amazing and mystical happening that Jesus is somehow present, other than he's present by his word. And as we point to who Jesus is and what he's done... We point like a sign does to a heavenly reality of Jesus at the right hand. It's kind of like this. On the screen is a word called cat. Okay. That says cat, right? Who he thinks that says cat? No hands. Right. Is that word cat? Yes. Is that a cat? No. Well, what do you mean? Like, now you're confusing me. Right? No, it, it's a symbol. The words C-A-T are a cat. Now, I wanted to do it with a rabbit and pull a real rabbit out, but it wasn't fair to Leo, a rabbit, so I left him at home. Um, it would be fair to a cat, but out of love for cat lovers, I didn't do it. Um, see, it, it symbolizes reality. It's words that point us. No one goes around going, no, it's really a cat. What, like, is, is there like a cat in it? Like, if you look closely, can you be like, there's like... Rrr! No, it's just a symbol, right? In the same as the Lord's Supper, is a symbol. Jesus isn't present in it, but he is present by his word as we remember it. It's the same thing with a wedding ring, right? If you've got a ring on, then you're married. If you take it off, I can't do it now, it's too sweaty. No, it's coming. There he is. It's like, oh, I'm not married anymore. What just happened? No, it's a symbol that points to the reality that 17 years ago, Sarah and I made promises to one another, and so we're married now. And so these are symbols that point to a reality, just as the Lord's Supper is a symbol that points to what Jesus did. And we need to focus on that historical reality. Friends, Jesus today is profoundly showing his love for us. He's showing us what he has done. He's showing us that he is coming back and that sin and death have been defeated and that this was all God's plan. And he's reminding us that as we think about life, there are certain things we need to make sure we are remembered by. It's not by what others think of us. It's not by how much money that we had in our bank account. It's not even by the achievements that we had in life. We need to be remembered by, are we united to Christ or not? Are we following Jesus or not? The decision that we will regret for all eternity will not be accepting that Jesus' body and blood was broken and poured out for me. So I want us to focus today as we're about to share in the Lord's Supper together on the reality that Jesus' body was broken for us. And that was our death because of us, but it was also for us. And I want us to walk away from this meal and seeing how Jesus has reframed everything in the Old Testament to see this new covenant coming through his blood that was all about him. 
to respond by being all about him in the way we trust him, in the way we serve him, in the way that we love him. So why don't I pray that God would help us to reflect as we're about to share in this meal together on the great joy that it is that Jesus' body was broken because of me and it was broken for me. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so thankful and sit amazed at the reality that Jesus would come and take on flesh and take the penalty that we deserve so that we could be forgiven. We ask today, Lord, that as we are about to share in these signs and symbols of the reality of what Jesus did, that you would nourish us by your word, by that short and certain promise that these events happened in history and that Jesus' death was in our place. We're sorry for the times that we don't treat you as we ought. We are so thankful that Jesus has taken the penalty for those and even the ones we are yet to commit and even the ones we don't know. And so we ask that this visible word we are about to share in together would be a great reminder of what Jesus did and the reality that he's coming back. And Father, for those of us today that haven't yet trusted you, but that might want to, we pray that this would be a day that you would draw us to yourself and move from death to life. We pray that this meal that we celebrate together might be the start of this relationship with you, that we might partake in this and see what it is like to be forgiven by the creator of the universe. Father, we ask that this day, that this meal would send us out into your world to live for you and point to how Jesus should be remembered. Pray this in his name. Amen.